0: Perhaps one of the greatest mysteries for the human soul, incarnate, within one's heart and mind and emotions and incarnation, to represent and to address as direction, as time. What time is it? Does anyone know the time? When should we do this? What are you doing now? When are you going? Where did you come from and when did you get here? And so many times when we address time, we really are invoking the power of space. What are you going to do now and how important is it in terms of what it constitutes out of the material plane that's mine versus yours? And we enter an argument and the argument is about space. The argument is about possession. The argument is about identity through the conquest of an atom, the nuclear bomb, an atom in the Ukraine or Palestine or Israel. And if I ask you the question, what time is it upon this earth? We, we begin to go toward the next breath, and we're not quite certain how to face time unless we know who we are and we so much identify that with what we possess or don't possess. I've utilized many times the stories, some of the stories, a handful of them, from my wonderful experiences with tribal peoples around our earth and the unsought glory of the love I have known, being welcomed so intimately into the lives of beings who are human beings, who live in different linguistic and cultural groups than those of my own incarnation. So one of the stories I've told many times is of being in the Alaskan bush as a very young woman in my years of 19, 20, 21. I was there off and on for about five long summers working out in remote areas and one year where I stayed the whole calendar year and worked as a teacher and as a therapist for the state of Alaska. And the experiences were wondrous. They were like being newly born. I came from an elite college and a very wonderful family of origin into remote areas where I would be without running water or electricity and be carrying water in pails and taking a mucky or a sweat, living with an Eskimo family for the autumn hunt, or teaching children how to survive in the waters of the Yukon where it was not in the language how at any time one could survive if one fell into water, right? At no time in the history of the peoples of Alaska was there the wisdom accrued and passed on to one's children of at any moment that one could swim falling through the ice, in a stream, a pond, a lake, a river, heaven forbid, the, the Bering Sea. So the story is about the darkness of water and the mystery that the direction of any moment in time was not safe toward the future because in the ancestral histories of all the tribes, there was drowning. It's a cosmology very different from my own life. I was put in the water as a baby. I almost drowned in infancy. I've talked about it many times. And then I learned to be a masterful, a truly masterful swimmer and taught people up to the level of being a water safety instructor to be lifeguards in pretty much any capacity. So that as I entered the remote areas of the bush, when I introduced myself to a family, they would entrust their children to me and to the other people who would be with me in villages. And there were young people in our program all sent all over the bush in order to teach swimming so that the Aleut, Tlingit, Athabascan, and Yupik people could learn to swim. Next breath, present moment, me at 19, All those children now teaching their children how to safely negotiate being with water. When one faces the direction of time and tries to bring about a holy way of loving another human being, it is a great experience of life. And then when one is met back with the reciprocity of that love embodied, There is relationship, and there is a collective that forms between oneself and another human being, that person's family, that person's village. And then we realize, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if every child on the earth learned how to swim so that he or she or they could be safe in a rainstorm, with a puddle in the street, or the yard, with a small pond, a tiny stream, a large running brook, an incredible river, a small lake, a large lake, a small sea, a great sea. So that when they face the elements of fire and earth and air and water, they can face time and be unafraid of where they come from, who they are, and where they are going, where we are going. So I famously have told a story that uh, in the second summer I was there, I came to a village that I love very deeply called New And as the Yukon sort of turns at the far west, down out toward the plains of the coast, it's several hundred miles in from the ocean, but it's a famous area that kind of slightly turns to the southwest. And people in that area know, oh, we're leaving the upper Yukon area just below the Brooks Range. We're leaving the interior and we're turning out toward Asia, toward the Pacific Ocean, toward the west, toward Siberia. It's a certain mood. And so... There's an extraordinary feeling in the village. I I simply have loved it there. There's no place I've loved more on the earth. And so when I arrived in the village, that very night, I've told this story many times, there was a knock on the door of where I was staying with two other people. And I opened the door. The other two people were afraid, actually, to open the door. They, Who's here? I said, I, I don't know. Well, we'll have to see. They were like, well, you know, what if it's somebody? I'm thinking, what if it's, who? Oh, like we're, we're supposed to be here to meet the people in this village, maybe 350 people. I opened the door, and there was a young man standing at the door, probably five years older than I was. And he was quiet, and then he said hello. We said hello to one another. It's a very nonverbal Linguistic group, so a lot of meeting is meeting, breathing together, hunter, urban woman. Without words, we introduced ourselves. There on the banks of the Yukon among the trees, the river, which we could hear off to my right and his left. And he asked me, do you have any dinner for tonight? Would you like a fish? Would you like a salmon? And I said, we do have dinner for tonight, but I would, we would love a salmon. And he turned around and looked over his shoulder, and another man who was standing back in the trees came out and brought out this incredible, beautiful, I don't know, 30-pound salmon. And he said that some of the older women thought maybe we were hungry. And so he brought the salmon and I thanked him deeply and they turned and left. And the people inside went over this discussion with me. You know, We're going to eat this and you accepted this. I said, yeah, of course I accepted this. It's like, what an incredible gift. So we baked the salmon. We had it for several nights. It was just incredible. It's unforgettable to me. You who have come to our village, you who are my sister, you who could be my mother or my daughter. We are here. We of heaven are here on this day when this river and its sky and the earth all around us and below the river and the fire at the center of the earth and the sun in our sky have allowed this fish to grow so beautifully that we might all be nourished to know heaven together. And then all the children of the village were taught by my two colleagues and myself for the next three weeks. The next summer I returned to the village again. Where is this gentleman? His friend who was his fishing buddy or brother? Where are their children? Where are their parents and yours and mine? and our ancestors, where are they? Did they live in such a perfect way that they took care of regarding God in another human being? That they regarded the universe in another human being and took care of that, that tree of life? Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, that's the only reason we're here. And when we turn to one another and we fight questions of time with the material plane, who are you? What are you wearing? What do you own? What kind of work do you do? How much do you make? What's their house like or their apartment? Oh, my God, can you believe that homeless man? I I can't believe that her sister is such a failure. I mean, she's so successful. Who are we? When are we going to bow to the divine in one another, the great mystery that is really our sanctified home and practice the vulnerability of embodying that love for its own perfection, for its own sake in everyone, everywhere? So, I'm contemplating this deeply because I'm watching our world increase in argument right now at this time. I've said for many years that there was a study done years ago where animal behavioralists found that if they took mice or rats and put them in a maze, they did well. They were curious about the little labyrinths that were constructed, little sort of causeways and byways and cubicles and openings. And so they would feed them and watch how they would behave. And then they would put more and more, they would make it too small or too big and they'd watch how these creatures, these sentient beings behaved when the human scientists manipulated the world, bigger, smaller, denser, less food, more food. And they found that Excuse me, when they put too many of them together, they would start to fight. And when they put many too many together, they would start to kill one another and sometimes cannibalize one another. And so they wrote out these ideas on their scientific paper of what happened to these rats or mice. And I remember extrapolating, well, If our planet becomes too crowded and we don't remain sentient enough we are looking at the map of our own behavior and we need to not do that. We need to be more aware and be more mindful would be the current word taken from Buddhism that we bring our attention, our intellectual awareness to the moment and try to embody compassionately how to represent the universe within ourselves and to one another. It's not that hard to do. However, one must choose when to do this. And I am saying now. Everywhere upon this earth, now. It's time. Then what occurs is we are responsible to bring the vulnerability of regarding in one another, the direction of time. And when we do this, we find that this love is self-evident. It is right in front of us, right within us, begging to answer itself in you and me and another human being and another and another and another. And when we live from this principle, there is immense contentment and meaning The universe is constantly answering us and fulfilling us and asking questions through us, which we can harmoniously, humanely embody in our own solitude and beside one another. But as soon as we manipulate time to try to say, I'm going to use time so that I get more, so that Space is mine, or more mine than yours. As soon as we do this, there's what the Buddha called dukkha, suffering. It's an old Pali or Sanskrit word, d u k h a or d u k k h a. Dukkha. It doesn't really mean suffering. It really means kind of the absence of autonomy. Oh, I forgot time. Now I'm grasping space. Whoops. Where did I go? I, I forgot eternity in myself. Sorry, I was gone from you for a moment. I'm back. When we lose time and try to possess space, we always go into suffering. No handbag or chic pair of guy shoes or sophistication or grubbiness of a cool, you know, morbid shirt that shows the grunge pathos we come through and the music we love and how funky we are, or the sophistication we emulate, none of this affects the suffering, the dukkha, we're stuck in it until we give up the argument about my world, I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-Palestinian, I go, you know, excuse me, sorry, who did we just kill in the Ukraine? in Russia today at this moment for which you and I are responsible why couldn't we simply feed grains of rice and beautiful beans planted by the Hopi to each of those beings who killed and were killed today that they might know the love I received And also gave or expressed, on the banks of the Yukon in Nulato. The fruit of heaven is all of ours; it cannot be possessed. The beautiful statement from Shakespeare: "The quality of mercy." The quality of mercy. It is our home. So I'm going to have us go back in time first, because. We tend to justify our driving will to conquer everybody based on what we think is lacking in the past or justified from the past or our identity because of the past. And then we use that blaming or that hostility to try to enter the present moment, but we're still arguing about space. We're not opening to the dimension of eternity and time. Oh, it is time to awaken now, humankind. The earth, she is crying to us. There are changes. Climate change is not necessarily bad. It is changing, however. The orchards all across the homeland of where I was raised have just had over eight weekends of rain, and so the crops of apples and other fruits, grapes, which nourish the farmers of that land. And are their welfare through the whole year, and families go to gather those fruits as grape juice and apples for canning and pies and eating fresh. Applesauce, cider. All of a sudden, for the last two to three months, there's been so much rain. Some of these families will lose their farms. All the work they've poured into these pieces of land for generations may be lost or may be held but through difficulty, travail, intensity of commitment and physical work now, in this season of changing climate upon the earth. I spent a summer where I visited for a little over a week to see my siblings who reside in that area. And I live now in Texas, so they had much rain. And we had a summer where there was no rain, not a full day of rain, from May until late October. It was very dry and very hot and i went through the animal experience of what it was like for my body not to be in the desert i love the desert and the places where one can live in the desert and their oases and ways in which we conduct ourselves to live modestly and harmoniously in that climate this is a climate that is kind of a drought and deluge and i watched the squirrels and the birds struggling with the heat, and yet finding their way. And it was a palpable experience in my own body. Oh, in this climate, this intensity, unrelentingly without rain, it is something to behold. And then I communicated with some elders in southwestern Pueblo and uh, the Pueblo tribes of the southwest, and some of the elders communicated about how hard they were working this summer. And after many months of their work and communication and their prayer and the communications we were having with one another, certain ceremonies were completed that they were undergoing. I went through certain practices I was doing here, and one day it started raining. It was just time where... I was here as a human able to receive the blessing of the extensive rain that just kept coming here into northern Texas. Every drop of it was in a sense needed, yet it flooded parts of the river, flooded the lower floors of certain homes that are close to the rivers. And the birds and the animals and the trees are sort of restored into a balance which I can feel in my body just like opening the door and receiving that man and his brother or friend and the salmon from their day of fishing later in that week I asked them did other people have enough food too I wanted to make sure were they giving me something that they didn't have no, they had given fish to several of the elders in the village and one of the elder women had asked them to make sure that I was all right. Right, They had treated me as if I were an old woman because the old woman knew I was coming to work with her children and was from far away and might not have enough food. She had made sure watching over me at that time that all of us were all right as her grandchildren became vulnerable to entering the Yukon River beside me where a man and his son and grandson had just drowned two to three weeks before, right? We were meeting something mysterious and entrusting ourselves, the heaven within us, one another. The way in which those men knew to attend heaven met the way in which I knew to attend heaven. None of us presumed to be perfect. As human beings, we were entering the next moment of time, doing our best, and letting the space be respectfully cared for. This is an extremely deep part of many tribal traditions that space belongs to heaven. The material plane is something sacred. There is a portion that is to be cared for, shepherded, but it does not really belong to you or me. It is our home so that we can know heaven through the home that is heaven everywhere. This is what a great medicine man or woman from many tribes would understand as part of their fluent vocabulary of life. So I'm going to go back in time and set a course for us to be a bit ceremonial in this retreat. So I think it's helpful to give us a way to embody a principle of allowing time adequate respect within one's own physical body as one moves forward, at any point in one's journey as a human being. So I go back to poets. I love I love poetry. I have since I was a little girl. I've said many times my father's father, William Charles Hin, wrote poetry, and shared aspects of it me with me when I was a little girl. He had a beautiful notebook with watercolor paintings of his and poems that he had written in it, which was present in our family cottage all through my childhood it was. Um, an item of great beauty to my family. If I go back to the romantic poets, one of them named Percy Shelley lived from 1792 to 1822. He died tragically. He drowned, actually, off the coast of Italy. Very irresponsibly, actually, they were out in a boat that was not seaworthy and were dreaming of the idea of of this romantic life, and and yet it ended up taking his life, and so he died died at that time as a very young man. When he was a little bit younger, at age 25, he and a close friend of his named Horace Smith, who was a a close friend and fellow poet, they entered a competition and they wrote poems side by side. And the poem was called Ozymandias. They both called their poem by the same title. They wrote sonnets. It just follow a certain structure, quite a beautiful geometric structure of how you render the words and the lines. And so the poem is about a person who lived long ago named Ozymandias. And he was looking out and, uh, over the splendor and a person in the present time, Shelley was looking back. What had befallen Ozymandias? Shelley looked to see that there were desert sands. And beneath them, there were these forms of sort of buildings and statues that were from once upon a time. And that that kingdom of space had gone away into the dust of time. The sands of the earth beneath the suns and heat and cold winters and lack of water or seasons when snow fell upon this earth. There's a quality of loss or emptiness or the devaluation of possession so extreme in the poem. And uh, my husband many times quotes the poem. He's very moved by the reality of the poem, the lack of value that the trinkets have. He'll come in and there's a famous quote, I don't even remember who said it, uh, that a fire and you know a glass of water or something warm, the fire of the hearth, the warmth is really all that's needed. All the rest, John will say, all the rest is just trinkets. And we'll be together just in the deep moment of that breath and that love. Our lives. So content. So blessed. As we look at Ozymandias all over the earth. There are places we can take care of, museums and cobblestone streets and the Eiffel Tower and beautiful caves in Burma or Myanmar. All over the earth we can turn to places we've regarded as being important. And yet they are important so that we know how to be humane. We know how to remember who we are of heaven, not just each within ourselves, but side by side, the new lot of fishermen beside me, the old woman who advised him beside him and me and the children, so that we might meet the next day in the space that is that village together. And each of us know heaven and share that. Heaven itself will bring enough assignments of homework, hurricanes, blizzards, diseases, challenges, in which we need one another so that we know what to do about the apple trees in Western New York State. What shall we do? the dead trees that died from the drought throughout Texas. Oh, let's see. That tree has gone from my friend's yard. What might they plant to grow, to protect somewhat from the sun and yet be adequate in its ability to live harmoniously in this climate of drought and deluge? What tree might that be? Then what occurs is within us A quiet wisdom, an ecstatic innocence arises. And I speak of this because I study this emotion or human experience all the time, 24 hours a day. I've known it in wise men and women. I've seen it in innocent children. The home of the very heart of heaven is available to every human being. If we create a capacity to allow the layers of the onion of our past suffering to fall away beside one another. Oh, you went through this in childhood. Well, sit with me, we'll work through it. You were mistaught to compete until somebody conquered. Well, what about the neighbor? Can you be the Good Shepherd to him or her or them as well as yourself so that you might know heaven? See, I'm not going to let go of heaven and your neighbor or you, no matter what you do. I'm not going to let it go. And this is the home I've known in several great beings. They never let that go. They, There's no cost. There's no one to pay. There's no weapon that could take from them the way in which God's kingdom or the universe's domain lives in their hearts. And so when we meet in that place, every place in the universe that is made of atomic material is our home. I could look at Fabergé eggs in a museum in St. Petersburg or hand my my sandwich to a homeless man on the banks of the Never River there and stand with him for a minute and ask him, what is that kind of bird? And we are home. And my own experience of ethics is that what I would call God expects us to do this. This is our school. Why would we not embody being students of the only school we are conceived and born to study. And what we do is we become very defined by our mind, making it more and more sophisticated in its desires, so that we say, if I only had this, then I'd tolerate you more. If I could just do this and possess this, then I might listen to you. You know, I just want a little bit more and I want more than you have and then what you have is okay but not good enough. It's never good enough. I go, for who? Who do you think you are? And when somebody says that, we go, oh, I have a tantrum. I'll tell you who I am until we devolve into hatred and killing each other so neither of us gets to know home. Isn't that the Absolutely stupidest thing a human being could do. It is, there's nothing more foolish. It's not why any human being was ever created, period. And we turn to theologies, and then what happens? Will they reincarnate? Oh, is there, there's, there's nothing after death or just gone? Oh no, there's a hell or a purgatory. I go, why don't you just stop and breathe and take care of the living being before you and yourself right now? In this breath, the quality of that dewdrop of the ocean you are and I am then touches every other dewdrop, every other human being. And some general in any nation of the world is to turn to wisdom as your grandfather or mine spiritually your brother or mine spiritually, your daughter or mine spiritually, that they might study a wisdom teaching them to turn their weapons into plowshares and feed the children of the world together. When we return in this direction, we are aware, oh, I'm here to embody this principle that is within me of heaven in this breath, and you? And when we are caught in argument, our work is to find our responsibility to come through that into a harmonic of life for the next moment and the next and the next. If someone threatens us, we are to try to find our way through that. And to live virtuously in such a way that they become unafraid to take the next breath and enter eternity because it is time for that movement to occur in him or her or them. Then we begin to have that contented ecstasy present in your heart and mine. And Why this is important is then it starts to be revealed to us what to do. It starts to be revealed, whether we speak of it as God, the cosmos, heaven, begins to bring a new dewdrop down through you and me that hasn't been here before. Oh, I didn't know that if I put a Palestinian child to my north, And an Israeli child just born today to my south. And a Ukrainian child just to be born tomorrow to my east. And a Russian child born three days ago to my west. That through my heart we are holy family. How shall you be a place upon all atoms of the earth through whom each of those four children can study heaven on the earth, everywhere, every breath, every moment, always. The quality of this allows us to seek a path within ourselves, and supportive of a path for every single human being. If we pray and practice in this way, the movements of our days become fulfilled. They are internally contented with a solitude of meaning and purpose. And then when something is revealed to us to embody it is a civilized expression of something beautiful. We have built the resilience, a kind of discipline or muscle of ethic adequately to be this, and to be this for everyone, and to embody this within ourselves and our relationships and our neighborhood. And whether we're ever remembered or not, what occurs then is that seed or that dewdrop begins to affect the ocean so that we become a more profound civilization than we have understood historically. Just as the men brought the beautiful fish, there are qualities where People in Africa have brought me into their homes. People in Burma have made me safe within their trains and temples. There's nowhere on the earth I have gone where people have not brought me safely to the very temple of the center of their society. Whatever their faith systems are, their political systems, their cultural systems, their familial systems. I'm not speaking naively. I've also had people be argumentative, hateful, dangerous. Yet heaven on earth through the heart and breath and life prevail. Even if they had not, there's no force that can break what I'm speaking of. We go to the poem of Shelley and the brother poem of his lesser-known friend Horace Smith. The person they were writing about was an actual living being. He's better known as the pharaoh Ramses. He lived from 1279 to 1213 B.C. Sometimes he's called Memnon. And the reason that Percy... Shelley knew about him, is the British Museum had acquired a statue from the upper valleys of Luxor, Egypt. Percy is believed to have never seen the statue, he just knew about its existence. The statue was brought to London and displayed in the British Museum. But it comes from Egypt. An actual man who lived Long ago, the statue was out, known in Egypt, but out in the dust, the sands of the desert. The people who found the statue lived around it. Then the people who sent it to England or came from England to obtain it, they could be arguing now that it should go back to Egypt. I don't know what the status politically is of the statue. That all the different people who've been in relationship to the stone, and just imagine the stonemason who carved the statue. Who was that person? Where are they now? When you are gone and your body has come from dust and gone back to dust, may eternity be the time you experience every moment. Does that person have salmon? Does that little child have safety from your eyes looking toward theirs? Are you seeking to find Palestine for them, Israel for them, the Ukraine for them, Russia for them, without hatred? Are you finding the direction of heaven in your heart and life that you help be a civilization adequate for every single human being upon this earth, including yourself and myself, we breathe, we pray, we practice.